So expectations are not always bad, right? However, certain self-made expectations can keep us from appreciating and embracing what we have. If we're always expecting our husband to be like Mr. Darcy, we won't appreciate the man that we got. They can keep us from accepting what God wants to give us. Because our eyes are so on what we want, we don't realize that what he wants to give us is actually higher, better. And they can keep us from apprehending, understanding what God is actually saying to us. Because all we want to hear is is that word. Or it can also keep us from taking the right actions. Have you ever had your own expectations disappoint you? I meet more women who have been disappointed by their Christmas presents from their husbands. And I have to say, this has been my experience. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, who I absolutely love, but you know, I was still at that age where there's a little bit of competition, you know, who's got the better marriage, who's got the better husband. And she showed me an eternity ring that her husband had given her. You know, one of those eternity rings where the diamonds go all the way around. Maybe you have one. Don't show it to me. I'm working on lust. And she showed it to me and said, look what, you know, my husband gave me. And I was like, wow, that is amazing. And so I hinted every which way I could about Christmas. That I didn't mind if we went into debt somewhat. If somebody just wanted to give me a public display of his affection towards me. And imagine when I opened my Christmas present and there was a ring. The tiniest little heart you've ever seen with microscopic diamonds. I only knew there were diamonds in there because he told me there were diamonds in there. They were seriously diamond chips. And it was a child's ring. And he said to me, oh, I saw those other rings with the diamonds going all the way around. I'm like, yes, but I knew that wasn't you. Oh, you did? (laughs) And I I saw another ring with a really big fat diamond, but I said, that's not my Cheryl. It's not. (laughs) And then I saw this delicate, tiny little heart with those diamonds that could barely be seen. And I said, that's my Cheryl. (laughs) You did? Wow. I even tried giving it to my daughters when they got to be 12. The first one said, that's okay. And she gave it back. And I gave it to the second one when she turned 12. Like, this is from daddy. And I found it back in my jewelry box. I, I still have it. And it's, it's, it's sweet. But it was disappointing. I just have to be honest about that. Now we can laugh at it. This is what you thought of me. This is what my dad gave me. But anyway, this one. But you know, we can miss. We can miss what we've got when our expectations. You know, later I thought about that. How sweet that he thought I was that humble when I wasn't. That he thought of me as that tiny little heart with diamond chips. I, I had missed the whole message. I still don't wear the ring, but I had missed the whole message. You know, often we are so set on what we want God to say to us that we miss what he actually says. Um, just two weeks ago, it was funny, I was walking Barnabas. And I expected, Barnabas is my big black golden doodle that I prayed for two years for and never really thought I was going to get. And my children gave him to me for my birthday. He was tiny, and now he's 60 pounds, and he's only nine months old. And I was walking him, and I get lots of comments on Barnabas. Mainly, look, who's walking who? Because he pulls. But I, I expected, when this, this young man spoke to me, that he was going to say something about the dog. I mean, I was all attuned to, like, I, and I was ready to say, thank you very much. He, he is a wonderful dog. Best dog I ever had. But he didn't say that. He said something else. And I had to stop and say, pardon? And he said it again. And then there was a 10-second delay 
because it was so not what I expected. He said, I like your shirt. <laughs> and I have to look at my shirt because I couldn't remember what I put on this morning because I was so ready to have it about Barnabas, my big, black, beautiful dog. And it threw me. And I, I was just looking at him like, huh? what my name is. I could not, you know, I, that's how Barnabas talks. I could not put it together because of my expectation. Have you ever had that? Where you expected somebody to say something and when they said something else, you were just kind of staring at them like, wait, let me process this. However, it is also possible to have the truth form our expectations. When biblical truth of who God really is, when we really grasp what the Bible is telling us and teaching us about Jesus Christ, our expectations can become a tool to prepare us spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally for what the Lord wants to do. It can open our eyes to all that the Lord is doing and help us to take the right preparations and actions to be part of his work. When it comes to Jesus, we often have preconceived ideas about what he should do and how he should do it. We have our own ideas about how he should manifest himself to us and in each given situation, how he should work in our circumstances and how long he should take. I'll give you 10 minutes for this one. I mean, this should be easy for you. And often our prayers express those expectations. My dad used to call these directional prayers rather than directed prayers. And he said, directed prayers are directed to the Lord to do whatever he wants. But directional prayers are the prayers that give God a list of instructions. And want to hold him to those instructions. Often when Jesus fails to do things our way or in our time schedule, we look to another, another savior, another person, sometimes even ourselves. Well, I got to take this one on myself. And we take the circumstances into our own hands and we become militant. We plot, we plan, we devise, we direct, we lecture, we give ultimatums, we give pieces of our mind, we tell others off, we go to Facebook. <clears throat> Why? Because our God cannot be trusted because he didn't fulfill our self-made expectations. So now we have to fill our expectations or enlist the help of others to fulfill our expectations. In Psalm 62, the psalmist said, David, my expectation comes from God alone. What a difference this makes when our expectation is on the living God alone, not on ourselves, not on others. Oh, the pressure that goes off on us and the pressure that we take off of others when God alone is our expectation. When we allow Jesus himself to inform us of what to expect from him, it changes everything. We become prepared and ready for what he's going to do. And that leads to answered prayer. Unanticipated blessings, greater re realization of all he is doing, and greater love and appreciation for who he is and what he has done for us. And greater assurance of his forgiveness of our sins and affirmation of his good will for us. Let me read that one more time because I think this is what we need to hear. This is what the spirit wants to lay on our hearts. When we allow the Bible to form our expectations about who God is who Jesus Christ is, we become prepared and ready for what he's going to do, which leads to answered prayer, unanticipated blessings, greater realization of all he is doing, opened eyes, greater love and appreciation for who he is and all he's done for us, 
and greater assurance of his forgiveness of our sins and affirmation of his goodwill for us. In Luke 7, this is exactly what we're going to see. We have four different scenes from the life of Christ. And I use the word scenes. I'd like to use the word stories. But in our modern society, stories has the connotation of fiction. Now, when I was growing up, my dad told me Bible stories. I knew that they were absolutely true. But somehow stories have have become something that isn't necessarily true. And I want you to know that what we are speaking this morning, what we are talking about is absolute truth. It is something that happened, but so great that it has total relevancy for our life today and right now. And from these encounters, we learn something about expectations. We learn, number one, what our expectations are to be centered on. Two, the importance of always expecting the unexpected when it comes to Jesus. How to correct our expectations. And four, how to know or test our expectations, whether they are right or wrong. The first thing we learn is from the centurion in Luke 7, 1 through 10. Now, right after Jesus concluded his sermon on the plain, he was approached by the elders of the Jews. And they begged him earnestly to heal the servant of a Gentile centurion, a Roman centurion, a man who was over 100 Roman soldiers. And these elders of the Jews justified their request because they felt this Roman centurion, unlike other Romans, was worthy of Jesus' attention because he loved the nation of Israel and he had built the Jews a synagogue. These Jews felt that this Roman centurion was owed something. He was deserving. And so Jesus agrees to go to this Roman centurion's house. But while he's en route, the centurion himself sends a message to Jesus And the centurion says, I'm not worthy. You see, the centurion, even though he had helped the Jews to build a synagogue, even though he loved the nation of Israel, he did not feel that this qualified him for a visitation from Jesus. His expectation was not focused on the good things he had done or what was owed to him. Instead, his expectation was completely centered on the authority of Jesus. He says this, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion's expectation were completely centered on the authority of Jesus and therefore the power of his word. Because he recognized that Jesus was under completely the authority of God. The only man ever to be completely 100% under the authority of God. Ever. And under that authority, Jesus' word had absolute power. He only needed to speak the word. We're told that Jesus marveled, even commended the comprehension of this Gentile. This word marvel is the Greek word thamazo, and it means to admire in this context. That Jesus admired, he esteemed, he was blessed by this Gentile's faith. Our expectation for Jesus should be 
that when we look at him, we see his absolute authority. This morning in my personal devotions, I was reading Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. In Psalm 95 and verses 3 through 5, Psalm 96, 4 through 6, it speaks of the absolute authority of God over all of creation. Over everything, day and night, mountains and valleys, the sea and all that's in it. That God has authority over all creation, over all the affairs of man. He's got authority. Nothing escapes God's control. I was also reading in Mark where Jesus says to the disciples, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. Jesus never lost control of the situation. Everything was part of his plan and factored into his great work of salvation. The authority of Jesus. You see, our expectations rise. They're greater. They're they're open to like whatever he wants to do. When we see his authority, that he never loses control. In fact, all of a sudden, when we recognize his authority, we can look at trials and say, wow, what are you going to do with this one? I know I've told you this illustration before, but my dad one time told me it was okay to repeat illustrations. Bozo the Clown, Mr. Squiggle. Seriously, this is like one of my favorite illustrations. If you've been in Joyful Life long enough, you're like, she says this one at least five times a year. Yes, I do. But I loved, I didn't really like Bozo. He kind of scared me, but I loved Mr. Squiggle. And Mr. Squiggle would come out with this huge easel. And he would invite one of the kids, usually the meanest looking child in the audience, to come up and just do any type of squiggle at all on a piece of paper on the easel. And then Mr. Squiggle would look at that squiggle. And he would look to the right and he would look to the left and he would look down on it and look up on it. And then when Mr. Squiggle picked up that pin, that's when things got really exciting. Because you never knew what Mr. Squiggle was going to do with that marred canvas. But oh, he'd take that pin and he'd start drawing. And you never knew if he was going to make it a mother duck followed by baby ducklings. If he was going to make it Rapunzel crying out of the tower with her long golden braid. You never knew what Mr. Squiggle was going to do. But when Mr. Squiggle was done, you were amazed. Because you could not see. You could not see where the first Squiggle had been. Because Mr. Squiggle had so worked that first squiggle into his work of art. And then Mr. Squiggle would sign it, Mr. Squiggle. And he would give it to that child, rolling it up, and give it to that child who had marred that canvas as a work of art. See, God's got authority Oh, when our expectation rises that he is greater than Mr. Squiggle. And he can take whatever mark we have made on the canvas of our life. When our expectation is he's an artist. He's he's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. And he can take this trial. He can take this thing that men mean for evil. And turn it into a great poema, a masterpiece, a work of art that he can use this to press us into the image of Jesus Christ. And to give a testimony and a witness. Oh, that's what happens when we believe in the authority of Jesus. Just say the word. Just say the word and this situation is going to turn around. Just say the word and this trial is going to be used for glory. Just say the word. Our expectation changes. And then we are ready For whatever the Lord's going to do. The unexpected. Which brings us to our second 
seen. The widow of Nain, verses 11 through 16. Let me just ask you this before we go into the story. Do you ever plan? You are a woman. I know you plan. You can tell it by your purses. You, we carry purses and bags. What do men carry? Wallets. All they, they don't even have cash in them. They have like one credit card. We've got like five. We've got cash. We've got every type of change. I've got pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, because you never know. I even have a Susan B. Anthony in there. Silver dollar. I want to be ready for every eventuality possible. I carry toys for children just in case I meet a child who is bored. You know, I carry snacks in case I have low blood sugar or somebody else around me does. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am ready. I am planned out. I write schedules of what my day is going to be, of what my week's going to be. But we can have our life so well ordered, so scheduled out that you're like, God, you've got 10 minutes to work on Tuesday. On Wednesday, you've got this much to speak to me. But God wants to burst our schedules apart because he wants to do the unexpected. He wants to bless and work in unanticipated ways, way out of the box. And that's what we're going to see. But you see, when our expectations are on God alone, we are going to expect the unexpected. Because we're dealing with God. You see, many miss Jesus because they did not expect God to become a man. And they missed Jesus, their Messiah. God wants to do greater things. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him greater things. So as Jesus is walking into the city of Nain with a crowd of followers and his 12 disciples, at the same time, a huge procession is leaving the city of Nain, notably a funeral procession with a huge crowd. This this young man who has died must have been known in the town. He's got men carrying his coffin And his mother following behind weeping. And Jesus goes up to this woman and says, do not weep. And then he goes over to this coffin and he touches it. Which a rabbi, a Pharisee would never do. Because the carcass, the corpse was considered unclean. Jesus is doing the unexpected. And we're told that he speaks to the man in the coffin and says, young man, I say to you, arise. And to the utter astonishment of everyone there, the man sits up in the coffin and begins to talk. Now, somebody in our group today said, I wonder what he said. I have no idea. But to the utter astonishment, how long has it been since Jesus has astonished you? How long? Doing the absolute unexpected. I have to tell you this story because it happened to me on Tuesday. I told the group this morning, I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. I was walking Barnabas. No, not every illustration is going to include Barnabas. But this one does because it's true. And the other one does because it's true. But I was walking and I was on the um, river trail on the Huntington Beach side. And there was a man dressed with a UCLA um, towel for, a, uh, for pants and an um, athletic jacket. And he, he was obviously homeless. And I could see him. And the minute he saw me, he began to curse and scream and yell at me and and threaten me and tell me he was going to kill me. And then he started rushing at me. 
And Barnabas was non-reactive. <laughs> and I raised my hands to heaven, and I began to shout in tongues. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at five. I don't want to disillusion you, but Chuck Smith's the one who prayed for me, and I received. I began to shout in tongues, words I had never said before, and just praise the Lord. And as I did, I felt enveloped enveloped by the Spirit of God. I was not scared. I did not shake. I walked right through it. He was charging at me. He was swinging at me. He was telling um, me what he was going to do with my body and how he was going to hurt me and maim me. And again, Barnabas was (laughs) non-reactive. But I walked right through, and I just kept walking. And I remember getting to the little wooden bridge that crosses from Huntington Beach to the Costa Mesa side, just thinking, I can't wait to tell Brian this one. It was a God story. It was so amazing. I was so excited. But I'll tell you, I did not anticipate that. I did not anticipate raising my hands and shouting in tongues on the Santa Ana River Trail. That was not in my schedule. Walk with Barnabas was in my schedule, but not that. I don't recommend the Santa Ana River Trail right now because I think the man from Gadara is living there. (laughs) But I think that the disciples... The more time they spent with Jesus, the more time that they began to expect the unexpected. Just when they thought they had seen it all, Jesus would do something revolutionary, unexpected, and wonderful. Years ago, there was a book written called Your God is Too Small. And as believers, we can begin to limit God in our mind. We limit God to our plans. We limit God to our self-expectations. We offer him only a few individuals to do his work through. God wants to do the unexpected. And he wants us in a constant sense of anticipation. Saying something like this, I don't know what the Lord is going to do in this trial, but he will use it for glory. I don't know what beauty the Lord is going to bring into my life today, but he will bring beauty. I don't know who or what the Lord will use to speak to me today. Maybe a donkey, but he will speak to me. Maybe through song, maybe through a person at the market, maybe even through the mailman. But I expect God to speak to me any way he wants. Those who witnessed this young man's resurrection by Jesus feared. They feared. They realized that someone so great and powerful was among them. The disciples saw a new dimension of Jesus. He raises the dead. Those in Nain had their first introduction to Jesus. Who is this that raises the dead? And the entire crowd witnessed his compassion for a mother's pain and sorrow and his power. Those who witnessed this glorified God, they recognized that only God could do something so big. And they concluded that God was visiting his people God was with them, Emmanuel. A great prophet has risen among us. And this reference to a great prophet is straight from Deuteronomy 18.18, a promise given by Moses concerning the Messiah. When, when our expectation is right and centered on the authority of Jesus, It opens up impossibilities to possibilities. Those that couldn't be saved, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, all of a sudden, 
there is the possibility that they can be saved. Those who are in a certain devastating lifestyle can be delivered and brought into the kingdom of God and become heralders of the gospel. When we recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. Moving on, our next scene returns us to Capernaum. Verses 17 through 35 of Luke chapter 7. What happens when things don't turn out the way you anticipated in your life? Have you ever had things happen that you didn't anticipate? What happens when you find yourself boxed in, oppressed, in circumstances you never wanted, you didn't schedule in? Well, that's what happened with John. He's a prophet. In fact, Jesus says he's the greatest of all prophets, greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, greater than Moses. He's the greatest of all prophets, greater than Abraham, because he announced the coming of the Messiah. He prepared people for the Messiah. An angel announced his birth. An angel prophesied over him. He baptized Jesus. He witnessed the anointing of Jesus. He heard God speak from heaven, identifying Jesus. But even John had wrong expectations about Jesus. In fact, John's expectations almost made him lose faith in Jesus. You see, that's what wrong expectations can do. They can cause us to almost lose faith, to look for another means of salvation in our circumstances, in our lives. John was shut up in prison by Herod Antipas. He was arrested. He was put into a dungeon. And he began to focus on his circumstances, to the neglect of what Jesus was doing. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask this one question. Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Have I been right? Was I right in my ministry? Or should I look for another? It almost sounds like a veiled threat. You either come through for me or else I'm not going to look for my salvation from you. I'm going to begin to look elsewhere. What happened to John? Well, things did not turn out the way he expected. Sometime soon after baptizing Jesus, he was put into prison. And this was not how John anticipated or expected his ministry to end. I know others who the circumstances in their lives were never part of their plan. These circumstances or prisons have made them ask, are you the coming one or should I look for another? Prisons of maybe singleness for some, prisons of marriage for others, prisons of cancer, prisons of illness, prisons of child's rebellion, prisons of crises. Prisons of financial burdens. But we all have prison walls. Unanticipated circumstances that we feel have boxed us in, have changed the course of our lives, have altered what our ministry is. And John's eyes were so focused on his own prison and his own dudgeon that he could no longer see the glory of Jesus. He lost his expectation in Jesus alone. How did Jesus answer John's question? He said to John's disciples, look what I'm doing, giving sight to the blind, 
making the lame walk, cleansing the lepers, causing the deaf to hear, raising the dead, preaching the gospel to the poor. You see, no one else in history has ever done what Jesus did. No one has ever done such a thorough, complete work because we're told that everyone who came to Jesus was healed and touched and saved. Jesus was doing exactly what the Messiah, what was predicted concerning the Messiah, would do. He was right on course, right on target. John needed to change his focus from the deadly dungeon walls to the activity of Jesus. Paul the Apostle experienced similar circumstances. In fact, we're told that Paul, for the sake of the gospel, he tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, that it was because of the gospel that he was put in prison. In fact, he said the whole palace guard knows that I'm here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul was not focused on that prison. In fact, he writes to the Philippians and says, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm not the prisoner of Nero. I'm not the prisoner of my circumstances. I'm the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not going to believe what God is doing right now. I've gotten the opportunity to preach to the whole palace, to Nero himself. Those who would never have had the opportunity to hear the gospel because of my chains, because of my imprisonment, have heard the gospel. And he says, not only that, but the faith of other ministers has been emboldened because of my chains. They've seen these chains and said, if Paul has the grace to still proclaim the gospel to Nero, then I can certainly proclaim the gospel where I'm at. And Paul says, Christ is being preached. See, Paul did not see dungeon walls. He saw what Jesus was doing. His focus was on, look what Jesus is doing. Even with these circumstances, look what he's done with this squiggle. Look at the amazing masterpiece he's doing with this squiggle. Jesus then points to the prejudices of the people, the religious elite their preconceived ideas and expectations that kept those religious elite from following him, from receiving him. Using John as an example, he asks them, what was your expectation for John? Why did you go all the way out to the wilderness? Just to see an ordinary sight, a reed bending in the wind? No, you could see that right here in Jerusalem or Capernaum. You didn't go way out to the Judean wilderness just to see an average sight. You expected something unexpected. That's why you went out there. Did you go out there to see a man arrayed in unusual and showy garments? No. You knew that you would never find that in the wilderness. You knew if you wanted to see that, you'd have to look in a palace. So what did you go out there to see? You went out there to see a prophet, somebody who spoke the word of God. That was the draw, to see someone anointed by the Lord. That's what you went out. And because you went out there without the expectation, but just to see what that looked like. And the common people were told, recognize this about John, that he was anointed. He wasn't what they expected. John was of the priestly line. He could have been in the temple wearing the priestly garments, but instead he's wearing, he's wearing strange things. A belt, camel 
belt and strange skin, and he's eating grasshoppers. But the common people recognized that he was a prophet, and they rejoiced. But the religious elite refused to acknowledge that spirit of God upon John that drew them all the way out to the Judean wilderness. You see, there is a certain prejudice of our own conceived notions that can keep us from seeing what is before us, embracing the work of Jesus, and entering in and even enjoying that work. Jesus pointed to this prejudice when he gave them the example of children in the marketplace. The religious elite refused to be satisfied with anything. They didn't want to mourn with a dirge, and they didn't want to dance to a flute. Their expectation front came... Yep, it did just that to them. It kept them from enjoyment. They complained about John that he was too austere, and they complained about Jesus that he was a glutton, a wine-bibber, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus said, wisdom is justified by our children. In other words, it's obvious. Your preconceived prejudice has kept you from entering in. Your prejudice can be seen by everybody. Unbelief can always find a justification. I know someone, I have someone in my life that, you know, I've shared the gospel with, Brian has shared the gospel with, and they'll tell us, oh, I'm reading a religious book. What book? The God Delusion. Great. They, they read every anti-God book out there, but they will not read, they will not read or open themselves to even reading the Bible itself. And that's how some people are. They do not want to believe, no matter what. Tim Keller said, the problem is not an absence of faith, but the presence of unbelief. And the presence of unbelief is that preconceived notion of what God could do. They wanted a Messiah that they could command, dictate, and rule, and one who would accomplish their will. One who would live according to their lowered expectations. You see, they wanted someone who would defeat the Romans, but not defeat sin and death. How much lower is that? They wanted someone that would free them from Roman oppression, but not free them from the oppression of sin. They wanted someone who would bring temporary alleviation to their suffering, but not someone who would bring eternal emancipation to their lives. Their expectations were too low. And that happens to us. Our expectations are too low when we focus on the prison walls rather than what Jesus is doing. So how do we correct? How do we correct our expectations? We look at Jesus. We look at who he is, the son of God, the one under the father's authority. And we look at what he has done, how he has gone to the cross and defeated death and sin and has risen again from the dead and has forgiven us of every trespass and sin and all the laws that were against us and has nailed them to the cross and made a public spectacle of them triumphing in it and has given us eternal life already in us so that we will never, ever, ever die. We will just be changed. This corruption will now put on incorruption and this mortal will now be dressed in immortality. 
when we get our focus on what Jesus has done, is doing, oh my goodness, oh sisters, we need to begin to really appreciate the fact that we're saved. Not just personally, but I am so thankful you're saved and you're my sisters. I'm so thankful you're my sisters. I can look at each of you and just say, I'm just so thankful. We get Jesus together. We're in this together. You're saved. I'm saved. You know, what is that song? If you're saved and you know, clap your hands. And Oh, good. Very good. But you know, we're saved. We're saved. But I'm so glad I share Jesus with you. I'm so glad that the Jesus I know that protects me from men who are trying to kill me is the same Jesus that will protect you, that I can entrust you to Jesus and know that you are safe, that you can walk right through this because we serve the same Jesus. And my Jesus loves you every bit as much as he loves me. We serve a great big Jesus who is on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, who is a victor. We share this Jesus, one faith, one Father, one salvation. And we share it together, and that's not in my notes, and I need to go back. (laughs) Our final lesson comes from Simon's house. Really quick, let me review our lessons. From the Centurion, we learn that our expectation should be on the authority of Christ and the power of his word. From the widow of Nain, we learned to always expect the unexpected from Jesus. Let Jesus go way beyond our limitations and expectations. From John, we learned how to correct our focus, get it off of our circumstances and our limitations, our limitations, our dungeons, and onto the limitless power of Jesus Christ. And now from Simon's house, we learn how to test our expectations. We learn to know whether our expectations are too low or whether they're right. You see, we need testing because we don't know ourselves. I know so many who are deluded about how they really are or how they come across. My son Char, when he was a child, a young man, a teenager, early 20s, he had hypoglycemia. And he didn't realize it. But when he was hungry, he would get so grumpy. I would say, you are so surly. And he'd say, I don't even know what that means. Why do you keep using that? And I said, because it's true. You are surly, surly, surly. And I remember one time his sister just got so tired of it. His sister, Kristen, that she pinned him down and forced a turkey sandwich down his throat. And it was amazing how food would totally change his attitude. And we would look at each other and go, oh no, he's hungry. Anyone have anything to feed him? I'm not hungry. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'm not hungry. Yes, you are. You're going to get nice after you get food. Uh Uh-uh. Oh yeah. And we would feed him and sure enough, he'd be like, I'm sorry guys. I don't know what came over me. Until he got hungry again. Because we really don't know ourselves. And we need these tests. And tests tell you what you're lacking. When you took a test in school, the teacher often used tests to show what was lacking in your education. What was lacking in your knowledge. What was lacking in your skills. So she could know what she needed to, or he, could know what they needed to repeat. What they needed to focus on. So a test reveals what's really going on and what we have need of. Where our deficits are. And where we need to strengthen ourselves. So in Simon's house, there's a test. Funny enough, Simon thought he was testing Jesus, but it was actually Simon who was being tested. The great test of where our expectations are and what they are is seen in how we regard Jesus. Is he given the preeminence of our lives? Or is he critiqued and 
neglect it. I used to go out to coffee with a young woman. She's a Christian. And she was always upset with God. Cheryl, tell me why God isn't doing this or why he hasn't done that or why God has allowed this. And this always led her to be angry with people and this certain militancy that she had to put the world right because God wasn't doing and she would take to Facebook. It's a test. It's a test. You see, when we are angry over our circumstances, then our expectations for God are too small. We believe that our circumstances are greater than our God. But when our expectations are on the authority of Christ, then our God is going to use our circumstances as instruments towards glory. Now, Simon invited Jesus into his house for a meal. However, when Jesus came into Simon's house, Simon neglected him. It was customary in those days to greet every guest and make them feel welcome. Hospitality was a crucial element of that culture. And hospitality was demonstrated in washing your guest's feet. Either the homeowner himself would wash the guest's feet if he wanted to demonstrate how loved, appreciated, honored, or deserving the guest was. Or he would have a servant wash the guest's feet. Then next, a kiss of greeting or a visible sign of affection, a public display of affection was given. And finally, the guest was anointed with the household oil. Every family had a signature fragrance, signature oil for their house. Like an Italian family living in New Jersey's gravy. It was their own special recipe, an individual scent. And you could tell the house someone had visited by the way they smelled. Oh, you've been to John Mark's house. Oh, you've been to Simon's house. Mm, You're at Peter's house again. You could tell by the aroma. When Jesus answered Simon's invitation, Simon simply allowed him in. But none of the customary greetings of hospitality were given to Jesus. It was as if Simon was communicating, you, Jesus, should be blessed that I even let you come into my house. Rather than, I am so honored that you came into this house. But a woman known in the city for her bad reputation, entered Simon's house. And she made her way directly to Jesus. And she had an alabaster box that she poured out the fragrant and expensive oil on Jesus' feet. And she made a spectacle of herself as she washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, so undignified, because a woman's hair was considered her crown. And often... The value of her life. Then she kissed his feet with her lips. Simon was looking for a reason to discredit Jesus. Again, in Simon was the presence of unbelief. And so he, looking on at Jesus, said, If this man, notice his regard for Jesus, notice his evaluation, man, if this man were a prophet, He would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you see his expectations for Jesus? If he was a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. That was his expectation. You know, way back in the hippie day, I remember so many people being upset with my father and saying, if he was truly a man of God, he would know what those hippies had done and what their lifestyle was, and he would not let them in this church. If he knew, if he knew their drug rap. In fact, I remember uh, my dad hired this gardener named Link and I was having a talk with him, really nice man. But I remember he said, well, Cheryl, this is the last time I'll be mowing your lawn. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, I have to go to prison tomorrow. I said, oh, Link, what did you do? I'm all of 10 going, what'd you do, Link? Well, 
Before I came to Jesus, I robbed a convenience store. And I still have to pay the debt, but Jesus is going to go with me. You know, but people were saying, if Chuck Smith knew who these people were and what they'd done, these hippies, if he was really a godly man, he would never let them into the church of God. You see, that's what Simon was doing. If Jesus knew, he'd never accept her. He doesn't want sinners. He wouldn't let sinners touch him. He wouldn't let sinners come to him and make spectacles of themselves. But Jesus knew Simon's thoughts and he called him out. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say on. And then Jesus in verses 41 through 42 shared a parable about two men who owed debts to a creditor. One debt was huge, 500 denarii or almost two years earnings. The other one was not a substantial one-tenth as large, 50 denarii. But notice that neither, neither of the two debtors had any means to repay their debt. Neither one could repay the debt. Not the one who had a small debt, not the one who had a great debt. They were both debtors. They both deserved debtor's prison, no matter how big the debt was. But the creditor forgave them both, the 50 denarii, the 500 denarii. And then Jesus said to Simon, Simon, which of thee will love the the benefactor more? Which one? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one who owed more. And Jesus said, you have rightly spoken. And he said, this woman, though she's a harmatolos, she's missed the mark. She's shown the greater appreciation and love and hospitality. Whereas you have missed the mark because you neglect it to show appreciation, love, hospitality. He said, this woman has not ceased to anoint my feet, to kiss my feet, and to wash my feet with her tears. But you gave me no greeting, no kiss. You didn't wash my feet. You did not anoint me when I came in. And he said, and this woman whose sins are many, I acknowledge that. She owes the greater debt, but she is forgiven all. What's the difference? This woman, like the centurion, realized their own unworthiness. But that Jesus, Jesus forgave them everything. You see, we need to recognize our own unworthiness. Simon thought he was worthy. The Jewish elite thought they were worthy. Their expectations they, they liked their expectations better than what Jesus was offering. And in turn, they critiqued, they neglected Jesus. They invited him in, but they neglected him. You know, even today, in our ranks as believers, the test is this. Are you making a spectacle over Jesus? Or have you invited him in? but you're neglecting and critiquing him. Lord, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Should I look for salvation in another? Should I just save myself, Lord? That's the test. Or are you not ceasing to kiss the feet of Jesus? To love on Jesus? To humble yourself before Jesus. To make a spectacle of your love for Jesus. That's the test. That shows where your expectations are. That's the test. If you have invited Jesus in, but you're neglecting him and critiquing him, your expectations are wrong. They're off. They need to be corrected by knowing Jesus better. By focusing on Jesus. And if you are one of those who are making a spectacle of yourself, 
in worship and loving Jesus, then you know how great he is and how much he is forgiven. And you understand how great his forgiveness is. And you're just loving him so much. And your expectations are right on target. They're exactly where they should be. The one whose expectations about Jesus are correct, acknowledges Jesus' presence, honors him, makes a big deal over him, recognizes what a great debt is owed to him, recognizes the greatness of their own forgiveness, and has the assurance, the affirmation that their faith, their faith, Their faith has given them acceptance, salvation. Gentiles, outsiders, and sinners' expectations were right. And sometimes it's the religious that have the lowest expectations for Jesus. Sometimes it's the religious that believe in their actions above the actions of Jesus. Sometimes it's the religious that box Jesus in and tell him what he can and cannot do. Sometimes it is the religious that self-focus. Sometimes it is the religious that critique others on how they worship Jesus and neglect Jesus, like the Ephesians that we learn in, in Revelation that they were so centered about finding those who were false that they had left their first love. Sometimes it's the religious. May we never, ever become religious. May our expectations always be on Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Authority, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth was given. May our expectations be on the word of his power. May we from him expect the unexpected, the unmerited, the undeserved, the great grace, which is found only in Jesus Christ. Because when our expectations are truly centered on who Jesus is, his word will be enough. He said it, it's going to happen. We will anticipate the unexpected. Our eyes will be open to see that Jesus is moving even in our midst. And we will love Jesus even more than we have ever loved him before. The need of the hour is simply to have our expectations on Jesus alone. That's it. And he wants to raise our expectations. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that, Lord, as we're coming into Thanksgiving and this is a time to focus on all that you have done, all that we have through you, Lord, as We're moving into Christmas, a time to focus that you came, that God became a man on your mission. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you, Lord, that you, Lord, would correct our expectations. Lord, that you would raise our expectations. Lord, that you would center our expectations on who you are and what you've done, and what you're doing. Oh, Lord, we know that this can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right now, as your eyes are closed, if you'd say, Cheryl, my expectations have been low, and I want them raised. I want them raised so badly. Will you raise your hand? Just raise your hand, signifying that you want your expectations raised. Lord Jesus, you see these, your daughters, 
We want our expectations raised. We want to focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who sits on the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, the conqueror of death, the conqueror of sin, the one who is coming again, who will reign in power and glory and righteousness forever and ever and ever. Oh, Lord, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, raise our expectations, raise them, raise them to the highest heaven until our eyes are transfixed on you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand up. Um, If you need prayer this morning, there are women that will be up front to pray. And until then, may God raise your expectation. May the dungeon walls fall down. And may the glory of Christ be seen all around you and in your life. May God make every mountain a plain. And exalt every valley. And make the crooked path straight before your feet. And may you know Jesus better than you have ever, ever known him before. That you might freely break the alabaster and pour it out on his feet. And make you, may you make a spectacle of your love for Jesus this season. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the conqueror of death. Amen.